Whether it's a river runs through it or the oxbow incident, The Last Best Place or Legends of the Fall, why is it that so many of the books that have defined the American West come from the same place? This is Breakfast in Montana. I'm Russell Rowland. And I'm Aaron Parrott. And we're going to spend the next half hour talking about two books from Montana, one from the past and one from the present, in an effort to understand what it is about this magical state that inspires so much incredible writing and so many memorable books. So pour yourself a good strong cup of coffee and spread some huckleberry jam on your toast. And welcome to Breakfast in Montana. Welcome to Breakfast in Montana. I'm Russell Rowland. I'm Aaron Parrott. And for this episode, we're going to talk about two books from uh, Missoula authors. First is Chris Latre's One Sentence Journal, which uh, won the Montana Book Award this past year. And the other is The Burning Women of Far Cry by Rick DeMarinis, which was recently republished by Drumlumen Institute. Yeah. Two really amazing books, I think. Yeah. For very different reasons, but they also have a some similarities i i think they do this is chris's first book yeah and the burning women of far cry um i don't think it's rick's first novel but um, i think it was his first with norton Mm. and um i think it's his first fully formed uh of, of the early novels i think it's the one that's the best yeah well i love this novel and uh like i told you uh I read it first the first time a few years ago, and then I picked it up again when we decided to discuss it. I thought, well, I better refresh my memory, and I could not put it down. I mean, I just, just picked it up, and <laughs> the next thing I knew was 100 pages in. And That's how it was for me the first time I read it, and I, I bought it um, off of a sale rack at Ron's Roost in Missoula, probably 1986. Hmm. I think it came out in 86, so it would have been shortly thereafter. And I, I want to say I bought it purely because of the title. It's a pretty unusual yeah. title, and the original cover was one of those really stylistic uh, Art Deco kind of covers. And I, it's one of those books I thought it would be pretentious, some Missoula writer, mm-hmm. and, I, and I was fully prepared to hate it. And I read 50 pages, and it took a while to understand what he was up to. Mm-hmm. He wrote in a voice I'd never encountered. And then by, you know, like 100 pages into it, I read it in one sitting and laughed Did you really? out loud yeah. so much. Well, it's one of those books that's, um, you know, you've heard, used the word ex- existential to describe it. And to me, that, that sums it up really well because um, it's one of those books where there is absolutely no judgment from the authorial point of view as far as these characters. And there there's some pretty... Uh, odd behavior going on there's like incest there's um this horrible guy who sort of takes over this family step evil step parents yeah um you know the incest is not quite as disturbing as it sounds no i mean but you're right the the mm. the people in the book are the underbelly of you know common society like this stuff Talk to anybody who works in child protective services, and they'll tell you this stuff is endemic throughout the country. And he just writes about it like it's just totally normal. Yeah. Uh, people in the town is obviously Missoula, but yeah, 
Um, he doesn't name it. it. The town is actually called Far Cry. Although I want to clarify, I, I do think it's existential, but unlike, you know, Camus or Sartre or something, this is funny. Yeah, that's true. It's so very, it, very, it's not that sort of, yeah. I called it uh, existentialism with a laugh track for a We're here talking with Chris Latre, the author of One Sentence Journal. Welcome. Hey, thanks. Winner of the Montana Book Award. That's yeah. right. Yes. Against all odds. <laughs> you wrote that too? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I got love the movie. Right. I got screwed on the movie rights, unfortunately. <laughs> well, I know you, you told us in the introduction that you weren't, you couldn't really explain how you came up with this idea, but can you explain how you came up with this idea? <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I I started writing the sentences literally just as one sentence in these little notebooks I carry around yeah. just as an exercise in writing something every day, you know, mm -hmm. with no plan. To, I mean, I would post some of them like a month's worth or a week's worth at a time on my website kind of intermittently. And people seem to like that, but, you know, I never really thought of it as... as it was never a book project, right? Right. You weren't thinking no, in those terms. No, not at all. It was, like I said, just a way to like observe and write something about, you know, what something that had happened that day or a thought I had. I was tr I had a different job and I was traveling a lot. Um, so it was a way just to kind of check in or stay checked in all day, you know, looking for an opportunity for what might be the thing to write about later, you know? Um, and then when I read Braided Creek, the book that's Jim Harrison and Ted Kuzer, their conversation via postcard poetry back and forth, just these short little, you know, four or five line poems, kind of a little light bulb went on in my head and said, mm. I'm going to, you know, pick some of my favorite sentences from the last couple of years and try and recapitulate them as little poems. And, mm -hmm. and it seemed to work. I liked the uh, comparison to that one and also to Charles Finn's book. Right, right. Which is a fabulous. Have you read that, Aaron? No. Oh, that's a great book. Uh -huh. I'd love to get you a copy of that. Yeah, okay. it's, it's a good one. What's it called? What is it? Wild, Wild Delicate, Delicate Seconds. Seconds. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. So those are just like uh, every little... Um, just short word. little essays. I mean, like there's one from the bison range and just different animal encounters that yeah, he had. Yeah, most of them are... Centered mm -hmm. around animals. Just like flash nonfiction really is what yeah. it is. So are you still doing this? The one sentences? Yeah. I am, yeah. Do you have what do you have a notebook on you? I do. Want to read a sentence from it? <laughs> Jesus. I should have brought my glasses in here. Ah, that's all right. Put the pressure on it. He uh, reaches in his pocket. It's actually out, out I, it's out in my car, actually. Oh, that's Because right. I was making notes on my way here. Oh. So how surprised have you been at the reception? It's been great how much attention this book's gotten. I, I'm really surprised by it. I was surprised. So it's been almost, I think the 21st or the 23rd or something like that is the one year anniversary of when I did the book release event at Fact and Fiction. That surprised me because it was packed. Was it? Yeah. Yes, yes. I mean, I've played... Like, like Mara, who manages Fact and Fiction, who I work for, um, and I went back and forth as to whether I was going to do one at all or not. Because mm. years of playing rock shows and having all my friends, yeah, I'll be there. And 
There's the bartender and the, the street guy and two other people that were, are just in town. I didn't expect there to really be anybody there. And a lot of people showed up. So that right out of the gate was a surprise. And yeah, it's been a surprise. The fact that I'm still doing stuff for it surprises me, you know? But I think also, you know, Chris's little one-sentence journal entries, his kind of Zen meditations, are also kind of existential. A lot of grim. Mm-hmm. They're they remind me of like haiku, but with just a hint of cynicism or something. Yeah. So yeah, that book. Um, you know, I think one of the things that um, really appeals to me about that book is that it's like it's not like anything else I've ever read. I mean. And if it was just the one-sentence journals, I mean, um, the whole concept of it is that he started writing these one-line things from each day. And if the whole book was just that, I think I would have lost interest after a while. But it's really not just that. It, there's a lot of other stuff sort of mixed in. And there's a long, couple long stories mm-hmm. and, you know, some essays or proto-essays in there. Yeah, I agree with you. It's... Uh, it's a journal. Like, mm-hmm. what he, I think he gave it the right title. Yeah. All of these things, uh, you know, one thing he's really good at is sort of capturing the entire mood of a day in a line. So you kind of get a sense of where he was at for that particular day. But it also, you know, all, all together, they form a narrative. I mean, they give you an idea what this guy's interests are, uh, what his philosophy of life is. You know, there's, it's all there. Mm-hmm. It is. So there was a few themes that seemed to run through this book. One of them was coffee. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Another was, uh, you know, just sort of trying to find some appreciation for day-to-day experiences. Mm -hmm. I I noticed a lot of them centered around that kind of stuff. And uh, your dogs. Yeah. Uh, The narrative around Darla was especially Mm -hmm. moving. So what what did you... Did you have any... um, themes in mind when you were going through this or did it just kind of evolve organically yeah very much organically in as they were originally written as sentences but then once I had started calling them and then I had a few essays that that I'd kind of reworked from stuff I'd written just as like travel logs when I was working this job you know when I decided I was going to do it I just decided okay the theme I'm going to try and divide these up by seasons hmm. So if there's a theme, that's really all there is. Mm. But, but you know, I relish time outdoors, you know, and I relish time with my dog. So that is such a huge part of my life that mm. it was a given that that was going to be the bulk of the things I would write about. I mean, I remember, and I don't think this is one that's in the book or not, but I remember one time I flew into Orlando and I was in a, I mean, this is pre like smartphones. This is like Blackberries. <laughs> and you know I was on the shuttle to the like rental car thing from the airport and was taking one of those big you know cloverleaf off ramps from one highway to another and there was this pond and there was just all of these just pink flamingos you know mm. I'd never seen anything like it before and I'm looking around and everybody else is like nose down on these blackberries and I felt like of the 
20 people on this shuttle. I was the only one even seeing these oh, birds. Wow. And I'm thinking, you can't all be locals, you know? Oh. This can't be something just like when we see a bunch of whitetail out in the field, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. So another thing I liked about Rick's book was, you know, even though there's this sort of... Um, the tone of it is is non-judgmental. There's also, it's clear that the the stuff that's going on in the book really impacts the narrator. Um, he he doesn't shy away from that aspect of it, and he doesn't. He also doesn't dwell on it. Like he doesn't. The guy actually narrates the book, and he he doesn't go on and on about how uh, how much angst he's going through. With <laughs> we should probably sketch out at least yeah, some of exactly. the plot so yeah. people understand just how <laughs> twisted this book is but exactly. it's you know about a kid who's coming of age i think when he starts out he's 12 or 13 mm -hmm. and his father has committed suicide yep so and right there you've got a right. tragic thing and then the series of stepfathers that come in um you know there are each one of them is a a whole catalog of dysfunction I think one of them commits suicide too, right? One of the guy rampling, or not guy rampling the. No, the one before even before we even get to the main story. There's an, the hardware there's... salesman, yeah. <laughs> and then we get uh, Gent, who's you know a big fat guy who sweeps the mother off her feet just because he owns a, a, a dairy. Yeah, so he's, and he's relatively a, wealthy. <laughs> and he's a jazz musician. Right. And then she completely cuckolds him, and he slowly goes crazy. Yes. And he ends up in a mental institution. Right. And then the next one is Guy Rampling, who takes over the, the dairy, who steals it sort of from the guy, and he's just a... A completely he's despicable. Totally yeah, despicable. He's, Good um, word for him. And he, and he comes in, you know, before Gent has even started to lose his mind. He just sort of moves into the house and... Takes the wife, takes yeah. the business. <laughs> right in front of everybody. And so, and then they kick the, the narrator out of the house. Yeah. He's like 16 or 17 now, and they kick him out, and he goes to work in a sawmill and loses a foot. Right. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's... It, one thing like that after another. Yeah. Um, and then he, you know, I wouldn't say befriends, but ends up selling gopher cones with a with an army of hobos. One right. of them is a pedophile. <laughs> That's right. I forgot about the pedophile. Yeah. And then, you know, one of the things I, one of the characters I really liked was the sister. The sister's awesome. Who is, seems to be the one, the most grounded person in the entire book um, except that she's it's clear that the entire set of circumstances has an impact on everyone and in her case it it has made her completely devalue herself as far as you know her potential she's obviously incredibly smart and early in the novel she's presented as super smart mm -hmm. and the teachers all love her and they compare her to Einstein but then by the end of the book given her dysfunctional family she realizes the best way out for her is to just get married yeah so she ends along. up with this skanky guy who's like a, a mechanic i think right so with bad teeth skip <laughs> yeah skip well i i felt like uh there was no coincidence that um a lot of this was written in the transition between 
you're um, escaping that corporate job mm -hmm. and figuring out that you really wanted to do something else with your life. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was already writing at the time, just kind of finding my yeah. way, you know, and I had already been writing, like freelancing for like the Independent, the Missoula Independent, and a little bit for the Missoulian, and I think... I read an article you did in the Big Sky Journal, I think it was. Montana Quarterly, probably. Montana Quarterly. Yeah. Um, so what about some of the stuff in here that isn't like one sentence, like the story Crawdad, which I really liked a lot. Mm -hmm. How does that fit into the whole schema here, or does it? That was just, you know, like longer form observation, I guess. So, you know, I, I have a website, a blog that I would post sometimes regularly and sometimes not so regularly and, and encounters like that. You know, some of those appeared in like a different format on my blog at times, you know. So so it's like a thing that happened and you just wrote it up? It's a thing that happened and I just wrote it up. It just yeah. seemed like, it, same with like the Higgins and Third, the encounter I have with this homeless guy looking for a liquor store. Mm, yeah. Which you can tell how dated it is because at the time I had never been to Flippers and now I, you know... And there at least once a week, it seems <laughs> like, you know. And Flippers has changed so oh, much. Oh, yeah. You, right, right. In fact, there. I was there with Mark Gibbons last night. Yeah, that's where those come from. Just, again, just little essays that, uh, that's that's kind of where the Charles Finn influence, I think, comes in. Oh, sure. Is the value in flash nonfiction. Mm -hmm. You know, my friend Bill Borneman, who runs Bedrock Books here in Helena, um, he and I, share this interest in the aphorism and mm -hmm. so he has this huge collection of you know writers from marcus aurelius on sure that write in either you know one sentence or very pithy little yeah you know nietzsche chiron mm -hmm. um, it really is a form of its own yeah and i hadn't even thought about that until i did an event with um in bozeman and uh, Earl Craig was there. Oh yeah, and yeah, and yeah. he identified them as aphorisms, and, and I was like, yeah, you know, they, they kind of are, and I hadn't even thought about that. Mm. And and he kind of does the same thing with poetry. He does. He does. Yeah. These little Zen koans of poetry that, you know, right. the, the experience might be really mundane, like you see some kids out, you know, right, looking for crawdads, and there's something else going on beneath the surface, right? Like this one too. By the way, I want to point out, Mara did the illustration. She did. Uh -huh. Oh, awesome. I didn't realize. Yeah. I'll just read this one, but maybe you could read a few. This one's on page 17. The mind that collapses beneath the weather will go to some deep, dark places. Mm. I guess what I liked about this one is that it evoked uh, a line from a book we talked about earlier, Dirk Van Sickle. Oh, Montana Gothic. Um, it, at some point in that novel, he says, Montana is just a floor beneath the weather. <laughs> <laughs> Have you read that book? I haven't. Oh, oh, you got to read, read that. It's amazing. Yeah. So the whole thing about weather, you know, there's always something more to it. Like people joke about, everybody talks about the weather. Just wait 10 minutes or whatever. Yeah. Go, it's your go-to kind of thing. But I think people still attach a lot of uh, ominous meaning to weather. Yeah. You know, it's like our tribal ancestral past 50,000 years ago or something. Sure. That, you know, when the sky clouds up, it like means bad things are happening in other aspects of your life. Or sure. Something like that. So then when you get to, we'll go to some deep, dark places. I don't know. It's just. Yeah. Very pithy. 
connects two disparate things in a I mean maybe the point is to make people think about this stuff later you know when I read the <laughs> earlier one about weather um, you know I haven't lived in Missoula myself for a decade um, you know one of the things people always talk about Missoula is it's so depressing in the winter because it's always overcast and I remember uh, and this even made the front page of the paper you might remember this was sometime in the late 80s um, it was clouded over like really heavy overcast clouds. And I thought, you know, I bet if I hiked up to the M, you could get out of this. Mm. And it was like hundreds of other people had the same idea. Right. And so I get up there and you get above the clouds and there's all these people and it's bright, sunshiny day. Wow. And you look out and it's this big sea of clouds. It looked like the ocean. Yeah. Clouds. Huh. Yeah, I've been up like on Mount Sentinel like that. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. just really cool. And it was thing. worse back in the 80s. You yeah, know, yeah, for sure. When the mill was cranking and you'd get that layer. Frenchtown smog. Yeah, but, but the thing, like I love bad weather. So people will say, you know, just the kind of inane conversation you have, you know, getting gas or whatever. And like, oh, are you loving this weather? And <laughs> actually, no. You know, <laughs> I love it when it's cold and rainy and... Yeah. and because there's fewer people out, you know? I, I like bad weather. So there was, there was kind of two different t- styles of thoughts that I noticed. That, a lot of imagery, but also just occasionally just thoughts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So why don't you, with the second one here. This one? Yeah. Because it sort of follows the same... I've learned no matter the climb, that ceiling of dark clouds that I seem to live under, largely my own creation, simply rises with me. But at least the view from altitude is better. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then why don't you read the one before it? Because this one is more of an imagery thing. Oh, that sure. I really liked. I like this one, too. Two young girls on a toboggan are dragged madly down the snowy street by a pair of gangly, rambunctious dogs with tongues spilling and bouncing through the wild grins on their faces. <laughs> I am a fat, barely employable, middle-aged native guy with a chip on his shoulder and no health insurance, living below the poverty line with huge love for much and many, and you can believe I have a stake in this. That was one of my favorites in there. And it sums it up. Yeah, it really sums up the whole tone of the book, I think. Yeah. That was my post Trump election, ah, like anger at the world. Yeah, you know. I wondered about that. Yeah, you don't talk about being native much. I was curious about that. Is that a conscious thing or just? You know, I I like I like to think that my nativeness influences all the things that I do talk about. Mm. You know, Um, I think. You know, as I've kind of dug in a little more, you know, because I. I'd never lived more than like maybe five years in one spot for most of my adult life. So I've been back in Missoula now since the earth, like 2005, I think. So this is the longest I've kind of stayed in one place in my life, you know, other than when I was growing up. So. And you grew up in Missoula? I, yeah, Frenchtown, K through 12. Oh, did you really? Yeah, my dad worked out at the mill for 43 years or something like oh, that. Wow. Yeah. And then me and my buddies went to Seattle to be rock stars when we got out of high school. Mm. And then I was in Ronan and then in Ohio and then back here. It doesn't surprise me that you're a Montana native. I mean, I think it really comes through. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. You know, and my relationship to that has changed, evolved as well. You know, there was a time when I felt like I identified more as a Montanan than I did as an American, mm. you know? 
like you guys are something else. We're kind of our own thing. Part of Southern Alberta. Yeah, exactly. Cascadia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and now, like when I look at just the political situation in the state, I, my luster is kind of dimmed for mm. being proud to admit I'm... Well, pride isn't even the right word because I think that's... People say, I'm proud to be an American. It's like, you're an American if you were born here just by luck. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just where fate managed to push you out into the world. <laughs> yeah, and true. what what's to be proud about that? Mm-hmm. You know. Yep. So yeah, that that's a totally. I've definitely gotten more political. I think, like I said, since I've been here longer. Yeah. Well, maybe uh, you should run for governor on the strength <laughs> of this book. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. So Jack, the narrator, um, you know, he's. The everything is um, kind of pressing down on him through the whole book, and uh, De Marinus portrays that really well. But like you said, he does it with humor. Um, he does it in a way that you don't you don't feel like you're bogged down in this incredibly depressing, like um, you know, angst-ridden book. It's and part of the way he does that is as bad as this character has it. You know, he's lost his foot. For yeah. example, but his neighbors are worse off. He's a war veteran who sits in the next room over, complaining through the wall about all his medical problems, or right, or the the crooked photographer that he hooks up with, who oh yeah, who steals from the people that he. <laughs> That's takes. right. I mean, it's like just when you think things can't get worse for this guy, then he hooks up with somebody who's even worse off. Yeah. D. Marinus's book um, sort of jumps right in as far as setting the tone. A year after my father shot himself, my mother married a two-faced hardware salesman named Roger Truly. In public, Roger Truly smiled as if someone was holding a gun on him and said, look natural, Roger. (laughs) At home, though, he was usually cross and sullen and would rarely answer civilly if spoken to. He was a crack salesman and was once awarded a plaque engraved with the words, Ace of Handheld Tools. There is a photograph that records the event. He's standing with the owner of the store, Mr. Fenwick, in front of a display of braces and bits, hammers, rip saws, and planes. Both men are smiling, but the difference in their smiles has stuck in my mind through the years. Mr. Fenwick is smiling like a man who has just been found naked in the girls' gym (laughs) and isn't at all humiliated by it. There's a ferocious gleam in his eyes challenging anyone to file a complaint. He looks like a well-to-do madman, capable of anything, absolutely sure of everything. Roger truly is smiling as though he's just spilled boiling coffee in his lap at the church social. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's from like, the beginning. Yeah. yeah, it's funny. It uh, sort of bores into the all the stereotypes about what these what people are up to. I mean, he just seems like someone who spent his life walking around, looking at people, and recognizing exactly who they were. <laughs> you know, he really is amazing. He can characterize somebody in a few sentences. I also love the fact that the stepfather's name was Gent. 
and the other guy was Guy. Yeah. Like a, a subtle little, like, yeah. one was a gentleman, and the other one was just this guy. Because <laughs> you, you really root for the guy. I mean, he's so nice. He's willing to do anything for this family. And then here's how he ends. So this is about halfway through the book. Then one April day after sudden and total thaw, Gent fell down the basement steps. We gathered around him. Are you okay, Gent? I asked, but I knew he wasn't. He was on his back, staring at the dark ceiling. He didn't seem to have any broken bones or bad bruises, but more than the wind had been knocked out of him. Mother had been in the tub and was robed and turbaned like an Arabian queen. My God, she said quietly. She called Guy, then went upstairs to put her clothes on. She put on her pink dress, the one that made you think you could see through it, and a new pair of white shoes. She made a fresh pot of coffee and then put some bacon into a skillet. She cracked six <laughs> eggs into a bowl. Shouldn't we call an ambulance, I asked. What? She looked at me with some alarm, I thought. Ambulance? She pronounced the word as if it were Latin. Wow. Which it is. We can't leave him down there, can we? Oh, she said, frowning at the bowl of eggs. No, I guess we can't. You call Jack. <laughs> um, I think it's worth adding into this that Rick DeMarinis to me is the best writer that nobody's ever heard of. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just crazy that he's not bigger. Yeah. Well, and you have to wonder, you know, um, I think in terms of style and um, theme and stuff, he doesn't really um, follow the standard as far as Montana writers in particular. That's really true. Very few of his novels are Montana books. Mama's Boy, set in Haver, and this one. But when I think of most of his novels, they're, you know, California or they're, you know, East Coast. He's he's not a Montana writer in the sense of let's celebrate this great Exactly, state. yeah. It's all about place. and Right. That's one of the things I love about him is that you know, this book is sort of the antithesis to the worship Missoula. Exactly, yeah. Kind of thing. It's, he, he points out all the... Yeah, it's cynical. It is cynical. And that, like even when they're at Seeley Lake and he's describing the scenery and it's so gothic and <laughs> depressing. Um, yeah. He's, he is kind of the inversion of all that. And though he was, you know, really good friends with Richard Hugo and Jim Welch, um, you know, he didn't get the success or notoriety that those guys had. And mm -hmm. Even though he came close, you know, one of his books, The Year of the Zinc Penny, was optioned for a movie and it was going to star Gina Davis. Oh, really? As the mother. Wow. But things fell through at the last minute. Hmm. But yeah, I've, I've just always been baffled why he... And I'm sure it must, he must have felt some of that too, you know, if he's surrounded by all these... Well, yeah, and he, you know, he had to teach his whole yeah. career. He was at El Paso for years. Hmm. So, yeah, we would highly recommend uh, both of these books for very different reasons. I think DeMarinis' book is just a, a masterpiece of um, absolute um, insight into the American culture and funny yeah, it's nonstop humor, and part of part of what makes it such a unique book is that all these horrible people and horrible things, and he somehow presents it in a way that you can't help but laugh. Yeah, like the 
you know, the, the, one of the worst characters in the book for me is the pedophile, um, oh, yeah. you know, snow cone salesman. Right. Super creepy guy. But he has this little dog with three legs. You know, right. Tiny little dog. And oh, yeah. the kids uh, take the dog and put him in the freezer of the snow cone car. Right. And kill the dog. Mm -hmm. And... You know, when that happens, you're suddenly feeling sorry for this yeah, horrible this, person. This guy's devastated. He is, and, and it's you know yeah. he's a creep. You actually have a little bit of empathy for him. It's crazy how he can make you do that. Yeah. And then Chris's book is um, just a great read. It's um, full of some wonderful insights into. The human condition but also he's he's also got a lot of great humor in there too he is he's he can be a pretty funny guy too you know and self-deprecating and yeah he's just um i think i guess what i would say about both these guys is you know they may be writers but they strike me as just ordinary people right like they're writing about stuff that isn't all highfalutin and there's no pretense yeah that's yeah it. They're, they're not pretentious at all yeah so, Burning Women of Far Cry, <clears throat> Burning Women of Far Cry by Rick D. Marinus. And the One Sentence Journal by Chris Latre. So, join us next time. Next episode, we're going to be talking about Susan Henderson's book, um, The Flicker of Old Dreams, which has already won the Spur Award and the Willa Cather Award, and, and is a finalist for the um, High Plains High Book Plains Award. Book Award. Yeah. And the other book we'll be reading is a classic, Montana classic from 1944. Mildred Walker's Winter Wheat. Join us next time on Breakfast in Montana. See ya. <laughs> <laughs>